0: We love it so much, we really do use it ourselves, and we have four years, and I personally recommend you give it a try, no matter how small your business is. And to sweeten the deal, just for listening today, you also get three months free. Go to gusto.com slash boss. That's gusto.com slash boss.
1: Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson. And I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I'm Being
2: Boss.
1: Hey guys, Emily and Kathleen here, and today we are talking with Laura Tremaine, aka The Hollywood Housewife, about creativity and being creative even if you're not monetizing it yet. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. Hey guys, I think that you all know by now that we are huge fans of FreshBooks Cloud Accounting and they've recently rolled out a new platform that is beautiful and intuitive and incredibly thoughtful. I even got to talk to their design team about what they were thinking as they were developing the new platform. And I cannot speak highly enough about how robust FreshBooks Cloud Accounting is, but also how intuitive and easy it is for a creative entrepreneur to use. You do not need a degree in accounting to keep track of your business. But what I really want to tell you today is that even if you are still really small in your work and maybe you just have a creative side hustle or you just started freelancing, it is never too soon to go ahead and start getting organized with your money. And hey, the more organized you get with it, the more of it you're going to make. I promise it seems to work that way. So you can try FreshBooks for free by going to www.freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. All right, you guys, Laura Tremaine is a former blogger and current podcaster. She wrote online for six years as the Hollywood housewife, but these days you can hear her as a regular host on the girlfriend chat podcast, Sorta Awesome, and on her own show, Smartest Person in the Room, a podcast about surrounding ourselves with smarter people. Laura also writes a monthly email called The Secret Post, where she shares what to read, wear, and listen to right now. And you guys, I just have to share personally, I am such a fan of Laura. I've been following her stuff for years now. We crossed paths at a conference once, but you are also from Oklahoma. I am. In fact, I think that's how I stumbled across you online and got an immediate girl crush. But I'm an Okie through and through. So let's start there. You live in L.A. now. You've been known as the Hollywood housewife. Tell us about kind of maybe even in a nutshell or however much you want to abbreviate it, um, a little bit of your creative career and path of moving from Oklahoma to Hollywood.
2: Well, I grew up in a super tiny town in Oklahoma, southern Oklahoma, like just over the Texas border. And I also went to college in Oklahoma. So by the time I'd been there, 19 years, I was really itching to get out and do something else. And I, I have a lot of love for Oklahoma. My whole family is still there. But I always knew, like, even as a little, little kid, like, I always knew that it wasn't the place for me. Like, I always felt very different. Um Being super creative or being kind of a different personality wasn't exactly smiled upon, <laughs> All the time. (laughs) And so I really knew that I wanted to do something else. So after college, it was almost like a cost, like New York or LA. And I just was too intimidated to do New York City. And so I moved to Los Angeles, sight unseen. I had never been here. And I didn't know anybody. And I didn't have a job. (laughs) Wait, what did you go to to college for? Um, I went to OU and my degree is in letters, which is like a Broad
1: liberal, oh, yeah. Arts I know degree. about that. I always tell people my degree is in colors. So whenever they tell me their degree is in letters, <laughs> because I was an art major. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you were in letters, and you were just moving out to L.A. Like you, like what? I, I, what's I going know. through your mind whenever you're like just packing up that suitcase? Or were your parents freaking out?
0: Right. That takes some beautiful lady balls, like legit. I love you, it. You guys, it was so stupid
2: now that I look back. But at the time, it seemed like no other option. I'd studied abroad in England, which studying abroad in England is not like that different of a cultural experience from America. But it was the only sort of of out-of-the-country experience I had had, and it changed my life. It just made me feel like, oh, the world is so much bigger Then this little tiny area I've been occupying and I, like, I need to do something else. If I could have gone back to England, I would have, but it's just too expensive when you're, you know, 20 or whatever to do that. So I was like, I'm going to stay in America and I'm going to go to where, like, things are happening. And it ended up being Los Angeles. I mean, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted, you know, I'd always sort of been fascinated by Hollywood because who isn't when they're young? So, like, there's a lot of allure to Los Angeles. And when you get here, everybody is a transplant. Like, you know, so many people (laughs) move to Los Angeles to make their dreams come true. It's not like I was having all these original thoughts about that. (laughs) (laughs) But I did it. I just – I literally graduated in May and packed up and moved in August. I went through a terrible breakup. I think this was part of it, actually, not even actually, this is a huge part of it, I had a terrible breakup the spring of my senior year of college. Like one of those like heartbreaking, lay in bed for days, like what am I doing with the rest of my life kind of breakup. And so moving across the country was extra appealing then. Like I'm going to start over, I'm going to start fresh, I'm going to do this bold, crazy thing and everyone's going to see how crazy I am. (laughs) There was like a lot of motivations to why I wanted to move. But the the breakup was huge. Getting out of Oklahoma was huge. And so I just did it. I literally, my brother and his Oklahoma pickup truck, like we put all my stuff in the back and we just drove across the country. And I got an apartment with an acquaintance. Friends kind of set us up on Hollywood Boulevard. There was palm trees everywhere. Like I thought I had made it. I had no job. (laughs) I I did not make it. I had not made anything. (laughs) But just the move was huge. So when I got here, um, a few things happened right away. I moved in August and it was 2001. So when September 11th happened and I was – had only been here probably three weeks and I didn't – I still didn't have a job or anything. And, and, you know, that made the whole world stop and think, you know, what are we doing? What's important right now? And – I really wrestled with should I should I go back home and be close to my family? I really have no reason to be out here. Um, but I decided to stay. I kind of decided I was going to stick it out till the end of the calendar year. And in late October, I got my first job as a production assistant on a Tom Green special for MTV. And that was <laughs> a thing that sort of changed my life. It was only like a four-week gig. It was not a big deal. Production assistant is a like the lowest of the low, like, can I get you coffee, sir, type of job. I had no experience in production or entertainment or anything. The show didn't even shoot in Los Angeles. I never met Tom Green. Like, <laughs> it was like a really small project. But the executive producer of that show asked, he, the executive producer of that show was starting a movie in January. And he asked if I wanted to come work on this major motion picture he was making for Paramount. Wait, and what was that movie? Can you say? That movie was Jackass the movie. Okay, okay. So, I said yes to my I said yes to the producer before I even asked what the project was. Like all I heard was movie Paramount, like I'm in, I'm ready. And then when I found out it was Jackass the movie, I was horrified. I was like no because <laughs> it had already been
1: a TV show, it had been right? a very
2: popular TV show, very popular, but um, Johnny Knoxville and the creators Jeff Tremaine and Spike Jones had walked away from it because they had gotten to the end of their rope being on TV. Like they couldn't push the boundaries there anymore. There was a lot of imitation happening and um, MTU was kind of shutting down their creativity a little bit. So they walked away from the show, but then were offered to do a movie where it would be a lot. You know, it was rated R, they could have a lot more freedom there. So they started to do that movie. Now, I had never seen the TV show, but I knew enough to know, like, it, like, you know, that franchise is horrifying. (laughs) 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 Like, it's like naked men and lots of penis jokes. And like, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Well, I don't know. Now in the age of the internet, it doesn't, it seems a little bit tame, but at the time, it was crazy.
1: I mean, I remember at the time we were watching those movies and you guys, the movie plays a big role into Laura's whole life. We'll reveal that in a second. But, um, I mean, it was just you, you would watch through like with your hands over your eyes <laughs> and just kind of hoping your mom through. did not
0: come within a mile of you. <laughs> at least that was me, like afraid that someone was going to hear what you were watching.
1: And then like, and then everyone's like eating huge handfuls of wasabi and stapling dollar bills to each other because they saw it on jackass. So all my <laughs> dude friends, like it was just wasn't, right? it wasn't a I'm good time. I'm pretty sure to-
0: like ER visits were at an all time high just after <laughs> that. <laughs> but <laughs> and, I have a like, brother, my who's, friends too.
1: I have a brother who's a sideshow performer who like swallows swords for a living. And I feel like, you know, really that jackass culture helped put that sort of thing mainstream a little bit. Okay. So Laura, then what happens?
2: Well, on the set of Jackass, which, you know, you you guys are joking about telling your parents, like I didn't even want to tell my parents, this is what I was doing with my life, with my college degree. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. And I was still like the lowly PA. I still had a very small position, but I worked on that movie for, you know, seven, eight months. It took up all of 2002 for me. And, um, It was on that movie that I met, Jeff Tremaine. He – it was his first movie. He directed it. He created Jackass and he
1: eventually became my husband. So let's talk about this. You fell in love on set or like were you guys making out in broom closets or – No. I wish that that was part of the story. But no, like he could not have been less interested
2: in me. Like I was a baby child to him. He's quite a bit (laughs) older than me.
1: So And Bo, I, were you all about him? Did you get a crush or oh I had such a crush. He I had such a crush. He was the only adult
2: in the room, basically, in those days. <laughs> <laughs> like he is the jackass daddy. Like, you know, at the time, those guys, you know, he's who they call when they're in jail, when they're in the hospital, like whatever. Like he he was that guy. And I don't know why, because I was a little blonde haired sorority girl from Oklahoma, but I thought that was very attractive. So I got a big crush. Um, he literally didn't even know my name for months. So it was, it was not mutual. But after we finished that movie, he went on and did another show for MTV called Wall Boys that a lot of the crew went and worked on. So he and I developed a friendship and a rapport. And years later, years after that first movie, eventually, We fell in love and decided to get married. And in the meantime, I had worked on a lot of other things. I worked on some shows for VH1 and Fox and the CW. And I was doing a lot of production work, moving up from being the production assistant to moving up the ladder to coordinator and that kind of thing, um, all the way up to producer on a lot of those things. But a lot of these jobs in the entertainment industry, like like 90% of the jobs in the entertainment industry are not creative. So I wasn't using any creativity. It's very – there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of organization and logistics. And you can take a creative path, of course. But the path that I fell into and and kept getting jobs, and, and especially as entertainment at that time started to move towards so much more reality. This was like the explosion of reality TV. So reality TV is not the same kind of creative muscle as <laughs> – Scripted TV. So all of the jobs were on the production side.
1: Did you start to see a vision though for yourself? Like, okay, how can I work this system? What am I going to become? I mean, d- did you start seeing yourself as a creative in the industry or were you thinking I need to find something else? Like what, what was kind of going through your head at this point? I was thinking I need to find something else Um, because even I wanted
2: to be a writer. Like that was my dream. I wanted to write words and not, And I realized after being out here that I didn't necessarily want to be a screenwriter. I definitely didn't want to write for TV. By the time I'd been here several years, that's not even where my path was leading career-wise. Like, I would have had to go back and start over if I wanted to end up in a writer's room. Like, start over financially, start over with all my connections. Like, that's just not – the networks and the producers I were working for – they were all going towards reality. There weren't writers' rooms on those shows. Um, a lot of the most creative people in Hollywood during this time period were out of work. There was even the writers' strike. You know, what I mean, it was it was a, tra- a changing time in the inter- in, in the entertainment industry in the early 2000s. And and so I just it was not for me. I, I felt like I needed to do something else. I was being really zapped, not as a complaint, but just like as a fact. Production is long hours. You know, we're, they're like 12, 16 hour days for like these reality shows I was working on that were so stupid. Like I didn't even <laughs> like them.
1: I was like, i it's not like well. you're a fan of The Bachelor working on The Bachelor.
2: No, I was not working on anything as cool as The Bachelor. I don't even watch The Bachelor, but like the quality, the caliber of work I was doing was not even Bachelor level, <laughs> if that tells you.
0: What did your parents think you were doing? <laughs>
2: I think they were super happy porn. I could pay my rent. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> oh. oh, good.
2: No, it, it pays. You know, like I, I was making a decent salary compared to you know some of my friends that I graduated college with and whatever who had gone on to do normal type jobs. Um Like salary wise, I was you know proud of kind of of where I was, which is what made it like hard to think about starting over on the creative side where there weren't very many jobs. Um, like I was making it work, but it was sucking my soul.
1: Okay. So then at what point do you get married and start having kids? So after Jeff made Jackass 2, which
2: is the sequel. So Jackass And movie, did you work on Jackass 2? No, he would not let me work
1: on it. <laughs> <laughs> because were you guys married at this point or? No, together? we
2: were, we were together. We were dating. This is a total side tangent because it caused a major rift in our relationship. Like. Oh. I almost broke up with him over it, but he wouldn't, he was like, no, you can't, you can't work on it. Like we're dating. Like I'm not going to have you work. I'm not going to have my girlfriend be like, cause I would have been so much lower in the ladder. You know what I mean? Than he is. And so he was like, I'm not, we're not doing that. But to me, I'd been doing these bad reality shows. It would have been a great resume builder to go do a second movie for Paramount. So I was like, wait, but this is my career. Like, I I want to work on this big movie. And he was like, eh, no. So that was like a big so – we survived much. it.
1: You survived it and you went on to get married.
2: We survived it. Um He proposed, we got married. And his career was really taking off at the time. You know, he had not always been a director. He was a magazine editor and he's an artsy guy. So he'd kind of fallen into – Being a director and at this point his career was kind of going crazy. He had multiple TV shows and he does documentaries and commercials and he does a lot of things. And we realized that when we were going to get married and we wanted to start a family that we both couldn't keep working in production. Like it literally would just not work. And I was already complaining about being in production. So it was obvious that I was the one who would step back and kind of be the one at home because his career was always, is always going to be um unpredictable. And if you're going to have kids, of course, like you have to have like a steady something. Right. Um, if you have to have somebody at home. You know, I mean, you just do not like not like at home not working, but you have to have somebody who is the tent pole, you know, of your family. And so that person became me.
1: Well, and I think that that's kind of normal in a lot of families where one person might be working a whole lot and another person chooses to stay at home. But to the extent of being a producer in Hollywood, which is probably something in your circles is kind of normal or that, you know, people understand what it's like. I think that a lot of our listeners might be like, wait, now what? They might not understand the extent that Jeff might be away. And so kind of in the span of a year – if he's making a movie like Bad Grandpa or um, Jackass, what is your typical kind of schedule? Like, what does your life look like? Is he around a lot or is it he's coming home after the kids are in bed? Like, what does it look like? When he's making a movie, he is away.
2: Um, a lot of movies right now, for mostly tax reasons, do not shoot in California. So he is away um, sometimes for weeks and weeks at a time. And the TV shows that he works on, he still has quite a few TV shows. Most of them do shoot here and are on maybe a more predictable schedule. But the thing about entertainment is he might get a commercial and he has to leave, you know, in, within 48 hours and he'll be gone for a week. Like it's all very last minute. It's very spontaneous. So for him to be able to say yes to these directing jobs that he gets, um, you know he has to know that i'm going to be there to take the kids to school or whatever and right. and he is all over the place again because he has a lot of projects but our first child was born in 2009 which then the obvious th- the very
1: obvious thing for me to do was to start a mommy blog <laughs> yeah so i want to talk about that so you you quit your like, job in production, which is not really a career that you were wanting to build for yourself. You start a mommy blog. Tell us more about that. I started a mommy blog.
2: They, I was definitely not on the early end of it, but I was kind of when they they were really starting to thrive. I called it Hollywood Housewife pretty much as a joke. I mean, <laughs> it was literal. Like, we literally lived in Hollywood and I was literally a housewife. But I meant it sort of tongue in cheek because the Real Housewives franchise had already gotten really popular and I'm like nothing like those women. Like I, <laughs> right. I'm just not. Um, and so it was kind of like a silly thing. However, mommy blogging for me and for a lot of women was like the absolute perfect medium. Like, I could write thoughtful posts about being a mom or my kid or whatever, but then I could also do, like, a full post about what lipstick to wear. Like, I could do all of my interests. I could gather on the blog and present them to the world, and it was instant gratification. Like, you know, people would see it immediately and comment or interact with me in some way, and I I loved that. Like, it's, like, the best way... To be creative instantly. Like anybody could start a blog for no money at the time. You know, it was great. It was a great. Also, I had little, you know, I had a baby and then, you know, a year and a half later, I had another baby. And so I, it was perfect. I could be at home. I could write. I got a lot of interaction. I, Los Angeles can be a really lonely city. And I had been very lonely after I got married. Um, I wasn't, working. Jeff and I were trying to have kids. I didn't have a lot of connections with other women in town. Once I started blogging and I was on Twitter, I re—I started to make my best friends, like people I would have never known any other way. They found my blog. They found me on Twitter. Some of my favorite mom friends in Los Angeles, we met online. And then we maybe met up at the park and had like a shy, weird friend first date, whatever. Like All of that came through blogging.
1: Okay. I have a question then about blogging. And this is like at the time whenever probably – I would have lumped you in whenever you were mommy blogging with like Deuce, for example, Heather Armstrong, who is like huge. Kathleen. (laughs) That is
2: is the most (laughs) flattering thing anyone has ever
1: said to
0: me. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and also wholly inaccurate. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe at the time I was, okay, I was reading a bunch of mommy blogs around this time as a guilty pleasure. I think that I really loved reading mommy blogs before I ever became a mom. And then after I became a mom, I was like, I don't want to read anything about being a mom. But, um, but I was reading you and I was reading Deuce. So maybe that's why I'm lumping you guys together. Well, I do appreciate it, but that is not, that. I don't even know
2: what to say about that. That is, I would not put us together. She's like in the stratosphere of, she's like the queen of mommy vlogging.
1: Okay, so let me ask you this first, because I want to start talking about kind of the decision around monetizing or not. And Emily, you jump in too, if you have any questions, I'm just like kind of fangirling out and I have all the questions. I
0: know, I know. I see um, you just biting at the bit. Is so- that how you say that? <laughs> Maybe. Chomping. Sure. Chomping at the bit. See, we are I'm not a good worst. Oklahoma girl. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we are
1: the worst with the <laughs> phrases over here. And we're always using them, even though we're terrible at them. So you were writing regularly online for six years. And I want to talk about creating content and shifting from blogging to, I mean, yeah, from blogging to podcasting, which you're doing a lot of now. And you are still writing. But you had decided that you wanted to be a writer. You're writing on the blog. Did you ever think... It's a two-part question. One, did you ever think, okay, how can I turn this into a book? How can I turn this into a career as writing? Obviously, you're married to a super successful producer. So maybe that idea of monetizing isn't super front of mind. But I just feel like um if you had the drive to just pack up a truck and move to LA, you probably have this drive to Make something, right? And so I'm curious if monetizing ever crossed your mind. And then second part of the question is, I'm curious how your writing changed over six years and if you were ever kind of thinking of what you want to be known for or the direction that you're like getting intentional about the direction in which you were writing.
2: That's okay, a lot f- of questions. I apologize. so about the monetizing, this was always a tension that I lived in because, I had the luxury of not having to make my blog or any of my online work make enough money to pay my mortgage. Like that was never something that I really had to strive for. My husband's career, you know, paid for our family life. So I was able to just pursue what I was doing online always without that in the forefront of my mind. Even as blogging started to change and everybody started to monetize and everything like that, I didn't have to pursue that. I've always been able to have the freedom there. However, as I got into it, and I always treated it seriously, like I used to, you know, back in the day I would blog 5 days a week and and I started to cut it down, but I always took the blog very seriously. And as it grew a following, I always struggled with monetizing it because you can say that you don't need that money. But what other currency is there? I mean, you can look at the currency of followers or page views. It's just not quite the same thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, if someone's paying you for your work, then then to me that made it a real thing. And especially increasingly as I spent more time on it and more effort on it. You know, if if someone says to you, a family member or friends or whatever, like, why are you pouring your whole self into this thing? If you can answer, well, I make this amount of money, then people are like, oh, okay. But if you just answer, I love it, people are like, eh, is that a real thing?
0: Right. Or I, I have all the online friends. Like, yeah. it's like, even weirder. <laughs> I made my
2: friends. People are – yeah, all parts of it were weird to my friends and family. Like they were – They didn't want, you know, nobody encouraged me to stop doing it, but they were really like, what are you getting out of this? Like, why would you do this? Because I had kind of office hours for myself and I took it really seriously. And I think people did not want to want to work around that or understand that because it was still early enough that that was kind of weird to meet friends on Twitter. Um, to pour out your mommy soul for no reason, you know, like my parents were very private. They were like, why are we talking about our feelings on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) So, so it was hard for me and I did monetize some. I ended up going that way. One, for the obvious reason of it would have been stupid to not, like if you have a certain amount of, you know, readership, then it just seemed like, why would I not take a little bit of advantage of what I've built here? But also because I definitely, I was going to a lot of blog conferences and, you know, having a lot of conversations with people and it really made me feel like, oh, I have to, I have to do sponsored posts and I have to do this. And I really like kind of fell into that mind spin of like, I'm not doing it right. I have to be doing all these things. So I I mean, I went back and forth on that for years. A place that I kind of settled for myself on the money part was I make still to this day almost all of my um financial support for my online work is from affiliate sales. Because I felt like with that, it felt true to my values. I wasn't taking sponsors sponsored opportunities that didn't match at all what I was doing. I didn't have to seek out and do the whole hustle of getting sponsors and, you know, navigating that whole thing, which I tried for a little bit and it was just like too exhausting. With affiliate marketing, with affiliate sales for me, I was just Sharing the things I would have shared anyway. My favorite clothes, beauty products, books. I do a a lot of book talk. I'm, I would have wanted to share that with my audience anyway. So using an affiliate link there, it just felt very on the up and up. It's not, you know, everybody knows what it is. And it brings, it started to bring in enough that it felt justifiable that I could not have to do some of the sponsored opportunities. Now, some of my blogging friends were getting like huge, you know, there was an explosion for a bit where they were getting huge thousands and thousands of dollars for like one little post. And that was appealing. And I, whatever, I went back and forth on if I should be pursuing that. It just never
1: felt right to me and what I was trying to do. So I'm curious a little bit then about your content and writing. One of the things I've always loved about your writing is you're just so good about writing about life and writing about the little details like your favorite lipstick. Thank you for turning me on to some NARS. Or you're writing about some books that shook you to the core. Or you're writing about a shift in spirituality or even just recently touching on politics. So I'm curious how your writing shifted and did you ever think like, okay, I've got a book in me? This is really the question, like, when are you writing a book? Kathleen wants to know when you're going to write a book. And I don't know if that's inappropriate (laughs) to ask. Like, is it rude to ask someone like, when are you writing a book? Is that almost like asking like, when are you having a baby? (laughs) Um, No, but you
2: know what? I'm going to tell you, Kathleen, something I've never said publicly. Okay. Let's work
0: some magic here.
2: I tried to write a book. I pitched a book and it didn't go anywhere. It was rejected.
0: So did Just that – Just once?
1: <laughs> you
0: guys are like, wait, what, what do we do now? Just once? <laughs> no,
2: I mean I, I floated it. Like I pitched it around mm. –
1: um, How long be- ago was that?
2: A year and a half, right before I closed my blog. It was last summer. Like a year and a half ago summer, and well, this is a whole different tangent. Do y'all want to take this tangent? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're comfortable taking this tangent. I wanted to write the book partially for ego reasons. Like I've always wanted to write a book since I was a little girl. Like, you know, have a book published would be amazing. And then because it seemed like a natural extension of the blog. Bloggers were getting book deals all over creation. Um, it just seemed like the next step, like when you get to a certain blog level, then you write a book. And I had what I, what I still think is kind of a decent idea for the book, capitalizing on my blog audience and the things I'd written before, but also things that had I'd never had talked about or written about before. So it was, you know, I felt like marketing wise, I had a really good plan for what this next thing for me should be. And I I put it together and it just didn't, there was no interest. Now that I have a little bit of distance in it, and, and I could see this actually pretty soon after it failed in several ways. I My heart was not in it at all. Like I was doing it because it was the next thing I was supposed to do. And even though I did have a decent, you know, marketing idea behind it, I don't know if you, if you believe this way or not, I really feel like the universe kind of closed that door. Like was just like, this is not the right project. This is not the right time. Like this is not what's next for you. And so I, I suffered a lot of, re- you know, a lot of rejection and I knew immediately as the doors were closing, I knew immediately I was like, this is not, I'm not even supposed to be doing this. Like, you know how sometimes when you get a no, from someone, you get a rejection and then the part of you feels like, I'm going to fight for this. I know this is the right thing. I've had that. When I got my nose, I was like, oh, this is not even, this isn't even the right thing. Like I
1: felt relief. Yeah. But you are still compelled to create. You're still compelled to write.
2: Yes. And I, and I, I still think I do have a book in me. Like I do think that, um, for lots of reasons. I just think that that's, what I want and, and where my
1: talents go, but that was not the right one. Mm. Okay. I want to backtrack a little bit, not to like dismiss like that really heavy conversation. <laughs> um, Is that too
2: much? Should we cut that No, whole it's thing not too out? much at
1: all. Like it, I think it's really interesting because I, every time I read anything you write, I'm like, I think it's also because you're such a fan of reading because you read so many books. I always think. Laura's got a book in her. And so I'm just waiting for the day that you're like, I'm writing a book. And I think it's really, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that experience because a lot of us have these kind of quiet failures, if you will, all the time. And here at Being Boss, we talk a lot about reframing failures as learning experiences or it's not the right time or the right place. Um, But I think that talking about the nuances of what that actually looked and felt like is important. So thank you for sharing. It's not too much at all. And I still feel like there's one in you. Well,
2: me too. I don't think it's closed forever. I think that project was pretty handily shut.
0: So did that lend to you closing down the blog or was the blog already going to close? Like how did that or did it at all play into you shutting down that like part of your creative expression?
2: It definitely led me to finally close the blog. However, I had been wanting to close the blog for over a year but had kept it up because everyone told me you cannot get a book deal without a blog. Like it simply is not a thing that can be done. So I had been blogging pretty half heartedly for about a year, kind of wanting to close it. And then, um, when I realized that the, the book, um, when I realized that the book that would have been tied to the blog was not going to happen, it made it way easier to be like, oh, okay, I'm done with the blog. Like I'm actually kind of done with this whole section of the internet for right now. And so a few months after that, I closed the blog, the website that has all my archives, but I kept writing. So through the blog, one one of the most important things that I do is send out these monthly emails called the secret posts. I started them while I was still blogging. It's, you know, your basic email list. However, I started to kind of give those people more of myself. As my blog got bigger, I just started to get like really nervous about what I was putting out there into just free reign anybody. And of course, free reign anybody can sign up to be on my secret posts. But you have to kind of want it to get emails from someone. You know what I mean? Um, You can't really lurk as much.
1: (laughs) I think also, I don't know if you noticed this, but I certainly noticed it towards the end of my trajectory in blogging, which I still miss to this day. I think there's this aspect of like getting your roots in something and feeling like you have to stay attached to it or honor it by still hammering something out on a keyboard every day. But um, for me, I noticed that the engagement on my blog was going down. Commenting was not what it used to be. It was harder to make those blog buddies and good friends that you end up going on vacation with one day, I I don't know that that could happen again today necessarily. Maybe so, but in my experience, that chapter of my life was coming to a sizzle. And at the same time, I was starting to podcast and I noticed that you picked up podcasting, which I was super stoked about because I found like I found it was a new place to be candid and someone's really going to have to invest a lot of time to listen to a lot of What you're having to say and misinterpret it. Like I just felt really vulnerable to people misunderstanding what I was writing, which then just made me feel like a shit writer. But with podcasting, I I was just really excited and engaging in the conversation. And I think that just as you were talented in writing, you're even more talented or equally talented in podcasting and interviewing. So instantly I'm like, okay, Laura's now going to get a radio show or a TV show because you're in Hollywood. And I just, maybe this is like the entrepreneur in me that's constantly like monetize, monetize, monetize. Um, Not that I think that that's the the priority or the most important thing. And maybe especially in your experience, Laura, maybe it's not the most important thing. So I guess my ultimate question is, how do you feel about podcasting now? And um, h- what do you think it's done with your creativity? And, and I want to hear a little bit even about how you kind of prioritize creativity in your life. You're really dreaming big for me, Kathleen. I like it. <laughs> I
0: <know. laughs> She'll go um, there.
2: I like it. I like it. It's, it's wonderful. So podcasting, I just accepted – at the beginning, I just accepted an invitation from my dear, long, high school friend, Megan Teets, who had been a very successful blogger and had published a book and all had done all of that. She closed down her blog and started a podcast and was looking for co-hosts. So when I first just said yes to her, it was almost just as a favor. I had listened to like Serial and, a, you know, This American Life, some like basics, but I wasn't super into podcasting. She started a girlfriend chat show called Sorta Awesome, and I'm one of of three other rotating co-hosts, and I instantly took to it, actually. I was really surprised by what you were saying, like, it's a different connection to be, to, it's a different connection to use your voice, your, like, literal voice, in people's ears. Um Your meaning comes across, I think, a lot clearer and... It's like an intimacy almost, you know, with the people who hear you for an hour, you know, like that's like a whole different journey they're taking with you. So I loved being on that show with Megan. Sort of Awesome is a really positive show. It has built up a really great community around it. But I was only on once a month and um, I got to do a mix of topics light and heavy and it was just a great kind of place to cut my teeth. But after a while, I, I realized, you know, that well, not even after all. while, but it was definitely Megan's show. You know, it's her style. It's, it's her kind of brand of what she's doing and the kind of things that I wanted to be doing is really pretty different. So she was really pushing me to do my own show and I was hesitant because like, podcasting is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So last summer, I finally kind of said, yes, there are enough of these conversations I want to be having publicly that I'm going to do my own, but I'm going to set it up in a way that works for me. And once I gave myself permission to do that, like instead of it being a weekly show or, you know, all the different ways that they say you kind of have to do podcasting for it to work, when I was like, I'm not going to do any of that, actually, then my creativity kind of Like exploded because I was like, oh, I don't have to follow these rules. It's still a baby enough medium that we can try all kinds of different things. So in the summer of 2016, I launched my show, which is called Smartest Person in the Room. And it's built on people – it's built on the idea that we should all be seeking people who are smarter than ourselves and sitting down next to them and talking. As opposed to the internet, I feel like has made everybody feel like that they're the smart person in the room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you have to prove it.
2: Right. And you have to like really tell everybody that all the time with your (laughs) words. So I was like, I can openly acknowledge I am not the smartest person in the room, but I know who is. And I want to sit with them. And so one of the ways that I set it up for myself in terms of podcasting is I'm going to do series. So I'm going to do one topic and I'm going to do however many episodes on that one topic. And then we'll call that done. And then we'll start a new topic. It's not necessarily weekly because I do the series and then I might take a break and then there'll be a new series. I just set up the structure of it in a way that worked for me create creatively. And, and it's been great. I like that I can experiment without the stakes being so high or without feeling like I have to monetize it because, because I have to. Um, you know, eventually when anything gets to a certain amount of growth, it's nice to monetize it to pay for your expenses. But right now we're still in that stage of where it's manageable, um, for Megan who produces it for me. So we're, we're able to handle it ourselves right now. And we have big ideas and big things for 2017. And it's fun to kind of dream and play. Each series is going to be a little different and. It's been great. And and like blogging, podcasting is something I can do from home. My kids are getting older, but still I need to be close, you know, um, and fairly flexible because Jeff's still doing all his crazy business. So it's really, really working. And, and having a lot of freedom to do it the way I want to do it instead of listening to everybody telling me how I have to do it has been
0: <laughs> huge. Right. I think I think the thing that I'm getting from this whole conversation or I guess like the conversation I want to have now is about is around this idea of creating to create. Because Kathleen and I are obviously creators for money. Um and for both of us, there's some level of like have to like Kathleen and I just have that drive to like solve the problem of monetization like that's like a fun little puzzle that we get to work out in our heads well and it's
1: also our job for all of our clubhouse members i mean we we do a lot of coaching around that too so we instantly go there definitely
0: we're always there we're always there with this with this idea of monetizing but another thing that we also see is that monetizing can can cut off the joy of creativity or even like you were saying with the podcast this idea that You know, having these rules, once you break them, your creativity explodes. And like monetizing will create rules and boundaries that you have to work within. I even think about um, our, our secret episodes that we do for our clubhouse. Like Kathleen and I can play with those a little bit more because one, you know, Tens of thousands have, of people aren't downloading them say we
1: don't have two million
0: people downloading it, right, but also no one's sponsoring them. so we don't have to and not that we really think about what we say anyway, obviously, um but we can be a little more open about what it is that we want to say and how we want to say it or the topics that we talk about. so I'd love to talk to you both, I guess about this idea of. I don't know, the cre- or the creative freedom you have when you are free to just create. But also something you talked about earlier in regards to finding this need to monetize or to make, make it make sense to everyone else. Because it's not acceptable to everyone to just have creative fulfillment from something. So go at that, one of you. <laughs> I think it's a double-edged
2: sword, though, because there is a lot of freedom in not having to monetize or once you've monetized, kind of maintain and and grow. However, then you're having to dig deep for a 100% self-motivation. Yes. Like the thing about,
1: and that is hard to do. I mean, I yes. feel like you've been so prolific and that's what's impressed me so much is that you've been so prolific and so dedicated to your creative expression without having that kind of, motivator of meeting a deadline or making a buck, which
0: is huge. That motivates the shit out of me. I mean, think and- about even like – um
1: <laughs> I, I think of a lot of graphic designers who want to boost their portfolio. So they're like, I'm going to make up this like dream client in my head and I'm going to create an entire brand for them and then it never gets done or it's not good because they don't have any resistance. Like they don't have anything to push their ideas up against. I do think that sometimes I
2: wish I had a deadline or a a big money motivator because sometimes it is hard. But I will say, even from the earliest days of my blog, I've always treated it like a job, for better or worse. Like, I used to be like, this is my job and for, you know, it would have been a part-time job or something, but like, for this many hours a day, I'm going to write or create or Even, you know, return emails in a professional manner, like for people who are reaching out. Because it is hard to self-motivate, especially when you're tired and you have little kids. And I will say, because I said earlier that there, what other currency is there? A huge thing that came out of my blog that was not money, that did kind of become a motivator, was I got a lot of opportunities to travel the world. So through my blog, I went to Sri Lanka and Haiti and Israel and some really amazing life-shifting trips and made relationships with, you know, girlfriends that were also really life-shifting. When you're in it, sometimes you're like, well, that's not the same thing as money. <laughs> <laughs> but when you can, like now that I'm done with with blogging, when I can step back, I can be like, no, you know what? In the whole of my life, that was really important. And so I'm going to take that as the win, even though it was not dollars in my account. And now that I don't have the blog, which the blog was a daily discipline, even if I didn't write there daily, I was doing something blog related every single day. I have struggled a little bit more with... um Finding the well of creativity. And even with smartest person in the room, by not having it be weekly, we got a little loosey-goosey. I got sick at the end of last year and we kind of trailed off. So, and, and that's not great. Like, I don't think that's great for that brand. So, I mean, like there's definitely pitfalls too. If, you, if you're if you not answering
0: to anybody,
2: really, it's easy to get lazy.
0: Oh, This like empowers me to pick up so many or at least one. <laughs> we'll start with one, like Hardy passion project that really does test like just self-discipline that doesn't have any like outward metrics. It's just me creating for my own fulfillment.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm curious, Lara. would you consider the blog and the secret posts in your podcast, would you consider those passion projects? Like what, or do you consider them work? And one of the things I love that you said is that you treated your blog like work. And I know that you've been, um, openly unapologetic about even having childcare for your kids so that you could work on your blog. So I'm curious, do you consider it more of like a creative outlet or a passion project or work? I do consider it work. Um,
2: I mean, I could spin the answer to this either way, honestly, but I do think this is my work. Like I think that this is what I'm putting into the world. Smartest person in the room, especially is a really important project to me. And so while I'm very passionate about it, it, I treat it as work. My husband treats it as my work. Like we speak about it in a way that like you would any other career that was paying you a salary or any kind of wage. So like I do think of it as my work in the world right now.
1: I do. And it's so good, you guys. Smartest person in the room is so good. So um, you interviewed a writer for Pixar. Am I saying that right? It was a writer for Pixar, right? He he's the screenwriter for um
2: Disney Pixar. Now he wrote Zootopia. He also wrote Wreck It Ralph. He's now writing and
1: directing Wreck It Ralph too. That was the very first episode of Smartest Person in the Room. That was so good, and then of course. Um, Beyonce's set designer. Of course, I was <laughs> losing my mind. And you ask. here's what I love about smartest person in the room is that you're asking all the questions that I want to ask creatives about their creative process. And I think that you are so incredibly smart in the questions that you ask. Maybe because it's just the ones that I want to ask and then you're asking them. I'm like, yes, thank you, Laura, for asking the question because I really needed to know the answer. Well, thank you. A theme that has come through
2: a lot with smartest person in the room with the people that I'm interviewing and just the conversations that we're having is that the smartest person in the room is maybe not who you think it is. So like one of the people that I interviewed was a celebrity bodyguard and he is, he has guarded some of the A list of the A list people. And when you hear him talk about the work of that, of guarding a celebrity, which you would not really think like this big guy would be the smartest person in the room. You're just like, Oh my gosh. I maybe don't give everyone enough credit or maybe the smartest person in the room is the quietest person in the room. <laughs> you don't always know, you know, I love, I love learning that about people. Like, wow, like who would have thought? it's not the CEO, it's the this person.
1: Totally. Mm. Um, the bodyguard episode was really interesting too and just even some of his insights that maybe he takes for granted were so good like that it's his job to just make someone comfortable, not even necessarily to protect their body but to make sure that they're at ease going out to eat at the restaurant that they want to eat at. So I really love the work that you're putting out there. I love how – dedicated, it feels like you are to your creativity and living a creative life without the pressure of monetizing. And I know that you're in a unique situation and, um, well, a unique situation of having a husband who's a big time Hollywood producer, right? But I think that a lot of us who work do rely on the partnerships and even just relationships that we have with our spouses, our parents, um, to really support us in our creative endeavors and what we're doing. But I'm curious, does Jeff follow your work? Does he support your work in the same way that you support his? And we don't even have to go there. It might be a boring question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that when two
2: creative people live in a house, it's probably a different dynamic than if you have – one partner who's not creative and one who is. Because Jeff and I really understand each other a lot. Um, we're doing vastly different things. And his work, probably more than mine, has a lot of tedium to it sometimes that's not creative at all that he has to deal with. But I feel like we do give each other a lot of grace in, you know, a, a creative person is maybe in a weird brain space half the time (laughs) or more. Half? (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like he and I kind of understand that about each other where we give each other a lot of room to be, you know, kind of moody or very preoccupied with whatever we're working on. You know, I mean, we're both creative and, and so we're not really frustrated with each other in that way. We also both have things going on often like at our house. So one time I recorded a podcast episode upstairs. He was shooting a documentary interview downstairs. Like that's really normal in our life He to both be doing something in the house that's very creative. And I love that about our life. I love that about Los Angeles. Like I feel like that is happening all over town. There's, you know, a movie shooting on the corner, and this guy's at the coffee shop working on his screenplay. Like, everybody is sort of working on something. And that can be an eye roll, or that can be totally inspirational. And I find it to be inspirational.
1: I think it's super inspirational. And even just thinking about your family dynamic of both being creatives, I'm married to an engineer, and Emily's man... Counts dollar bills. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it is a little bit different and and as you were talking earlier about um I don't know you mentioned you mentioned something about Jeff I had that thought too like you both being creatives and understanding that you know a lot of what you do is just doing it for your own sake and you know having to have that inner gratification before you can move forward forward with getting any sort of outer gratification. I feel like there probably is that really good understanding there that is important. Also, you know, when I
2: um, couldn't make the book thing happen, even though I was, you know, part of me was really relieved to not have to actually follow through on this thing that I was only half-hearted in, the other part was like a big ego hit, right? Like I was like, oh my gosh, I got all these rejections. And so in that part – when Jeff tried to comfort me, and I was like, well, "You wouldn't know, like you're so successful, all of your stuff works." And he was like, "Have you lost your mind?" And so he was then listing off the many projects that he's tried to make go that haven't. And I was like, "You're right. Like the other side of being creatives together in a house is that we both get rejections <laughs> more than usual. You know, there's like a there's kind of you know the other side to it. It's not all like happy, lovely art painting all the time. Like there's kind of the other." Side of it, but I do think that he having him understand that and not not judge that
1: towards me
0: is it's wonderful. Oh, that's awesome!
1: Good, (sighs) um, Laura, I'm curious. When do you feel most boss? I didn't prepare for this. (laughs) That's okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When do I feel most boss? Um. I feel most boss at the end of the day when I'm like cooking a good dinner, my kids are in the kitchen doing their homework, I have done something creative that day, like I've ticked all of my boxes, that's when I feel
1: like, okay, I am doing this. That is a good answer. That's when I feel most boss too. You know, I mean, it is funny because it's not even. Whenever I'm getting the acceptance letters, you know, it really is kind of that end of the day. I feel like I've done good work. Yes, it's more of like a wholehearted
0: feeling. I feel like right. we're doing this. Yeah. I know. Mine was in the tub again. End of day. <laughs> Right, did all the things. Okay, every time
1: I am in the tub, I look at the disgusting like caulk around the corner that needs to be fixed, and I think Oprah's tub would n- literally never look like this. There is like <laughs> there is like a hair, you know, like wrapped around the soap. Oh my god! And literally, every time I think, every time I take a bath, I think about Oprah's bathtub and probably how immaculate it is.
0: I bet it's beautiful.
1: Goals hashtag goals right tub goals. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners check out your work?
2: You can go to lauratremaine.com and you will find all my social media channels, both the podcasts I'm on and sign up to get my monthly secret posts.
1: And we'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again, Laura, for joining us. It was so much fun chatting with you. Thank you. You guys, in 2016, my calendar was insane. There were literally days I would go without eating lunch because my calendar was so booked full of appointments and meetings. And you regular listeners know how much I love my food. So I finally got on the Acuity scheduling train. The best part about setting up Acuity was actually taking a step back and deciding what I wanted my schedule to actually look like. I then designated times for work, and times for meetings, and my calendar is looking so much more sane these days. Also, for those of you who aren't very tech savvy, don't fret. Acuity Scheduling is really easy and not so hard to set up. It takes a little bit of groundwork up front, but you'll be so thankful for it whenever your calendar looks exactly the way you want it to. Sign up for a free 60-day trial of Scheduling Sanity at acuityscheduling.com slash boss. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. Find articles, show notes, and downloads at www.beingboss.club.
0: If you're a creative entrepreneur, freelancer, or a small business owner who is ready to take your goals to the next level, check out the Being Boss Clubhouse, a two-day online retreat followed by a year of community support, monthly masterclasses, book club, secret episodes, and optional in-person retreats. Find more at club/clubhouse.